0: You are listening to New Covenant Village. All right, last week we began a brand new series entitled Defeating Depression. Now notice that we didn't call this thing dealing with depression because we don't want to just deal with depression. We want to have victory over depression. We want to defeat depression. So last week was kind of an introductory overview in which we kind of explored a handful of some of the primary causes of depression, and some practical and biblical solutions to overcome that depression. And uh, the the sources, the, the causes of depression that we listed last week include sin, both sin that we commit, as well as sins that others commit against us, our circumstances, which we cannot necessarily control, our thought life, and chemical imbalance. Now, as we move forward in this series, we're going to begin to explore some of the biblical texts that deal with depression. And this morning specifically, we're going to explore sin that causes depression. We're going to explore depression that is a result of our transgression. So, open your Bible with me to Psalm 51. And if you're new to navigating the Bible, an easy way to find the book of Psalms is just open right to the middle of your Bible, and you should be somewhere at least either in the book of Psalms or somewhere near it. If you've got a big concordance in the back of your Bible, then you have to kind of take that into consideration and go to the left a little bit. But one of the most practical things that we can do if we are experiencing depression, if we find ourselves in a pit of despair, if we are experiencing sadness and gloom and dejection, One of the most practical things we can do and one of the most biblical things we can do is read through and pray through the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms records men of God crying out to him from a state of depression, dejection, from a pit of despair, from a state of sorrow. And we can take great comfort in reading the book of Psalms. Now, Psalm 51, where we're going to camp out this morning, is essentially the expression of David's depression as a result of his sin, okay? And the general consensus is that this was written as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. let me set the context in case you're unfamiliar with that story. It's the time when kings are off at war, and yet David is remaining at the palace. And so he's on the roof, and he sees this pretty young thing from afar, and so he sends... Somebody to find out who she is. So he finds out. Well, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David says, "Bring her to me." So he puts on some R. Kelly, and then you know things happen. No contraceptive. And the next thing you know, David is thinking, ah, "Gotta do something about this." So you know what? Send for Uriah, have him come home and, you know, hang out with me for a little while. Hey, Uriah, why don't you, why don't you go home and spend a night with your wife, you know? And Uriah is way too righteous for that. He says, while well, the rest of my men are sleeping on the hard ground with rocks as their pillow, fighting the battles... Me, sleep in the comfort of my home and lay with my wife? That wouldn't be right. David's like, shoot, okay? How can I cover this thing up? All right, all right. So he, I got it, I got it. Send word back to the commander of the army to put Uriah on the front lines of battle and when the fighting is the fiercest, to withdraw so that he's left by his lonesome. And is slain by the enemy. And at that point, well, he's dead. She's a widow. She can be his wife, and the child is legitimate, right? Nine months after this whole thing. I mean, it's it's all good now, it's all taken care of. This is a heinous crime before God. And eventually David realizes this. Eventually it grips David and torments his soul. And what we're about to read in Psalm 51 is his expression of depression as a result of this heinous crime before God. So let's read the first nine verses together and then we'll kind of break that down and then we'll move forward in the text. Verse one, David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. We can see the tone here in these first nine verses. We can see David's despair. We can see his sadness, his sorrow, his state of dejection over his sin. That he had sinned not simply against his fellow man, but ultimately against God. And David knows that God hates sin, that his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And thus, David is in despair, knowing that he has violated his relationship with With his God. Therefore, he desires that his transgressions would be blotted out so that God could look upon him, that fellowship could be restored with his God, that friendship could be mended, and that he could enjoy God's presence. That God would rescue him out of the pit of despair, this separation, this feeling of exile, and that he would once again enjoy fellowship with God gladness and joy in his presence. And notice, notice how David's sin haunts him. You know, it's not that David was a wicked man and this is just another one of David's shenanigans. There goes David again. You know how he does. No, David was a righteous man. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5 says this of David. For David had done what is right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commandments all the days of his life, hyphen, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. We're talking a life of righteousness, a righteous man who was blameless before the Lord. And then boom, this snowball of sin that began with lust, discontentment adultery and eventually through deceit led to murder in a roundabout way and this snowball of sin tormented David in his soul for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me I go to sleep at night in regret why have I done this this is not me I can't believe I did this wake up in the morning hoping it's all just a bad dream, hoping that this is just a nightmare. But no, there it is. There it is right there on my mind. I can't get it off of my mind. My sin is ever before me. His sin was tormenting him. And what makes this even more devastating for David is that he knew better. It's not that this was just an accident, that David just kind of slipped up and didn't know any better. You know, it's not that David was like, oh, Oh, taking another man's wife was wrong. I'm so sorry. Didn't even mean. Didn't even know that. Oh, trying to trying to use deceit to cover it up, and then and then ultimately plotting his his death. Didn't even realize that that was the wrong thing to do. I'm so I'm so sorry. It just just kind of happened like that. No, he knew better. He knew full well what he was doing. And any time, any one of us. Plots or pursues premeditated sin. That's ultimately an act of selfishness rooted in a thought process along these lines. Now, we don't actually say this out loud. We don't actually think this. So this is kind of the caricature of what goes on. But this is the essence of, of what goes down when we pursue premeditated sin. Well, I know, God, that, that this isn't really in my best interest. I know that this is not ultimately what you deem as proper and good for me. And I know that it isn't going to please you. But to be honest, God, I'm really not into pleasing you right now. I'm into doing what's pleasing to me. And I know that to love you is to obey what you command, but I'm not really into obeying you right now. I'm into obeying my desires right now. After all, the heart wants what it wants, right? And you know, I mean, while this may not ultimately be good for me, it does have this momentary appeal. Must eat forbidden fruit. Such premeditated sin ultimately comes down to selfishness. David knowingly and willingly and selfishly plotted free meditated sin, selfishly violated his relationship with God in order to pursue his own selfish pleasures, doing what was abominable in God's sight. And as one created for relationship to God, one who is created to be in fellowship with God, you can see how doing something that displeases God could certainly lead to a state of depression. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. His conscience convicts him, and it should. His sin leads to a state of depression, and it should. It is supposed to. Sin should lead to a state of depression. You see, God has kind of hardwired us such that when we sin, We end up with a guilty conscience, or at least we should. We see this as early as the Garden of Eden. We see this in creation, where God gives Adam and Eve one command. You can eat all this fruit, all of it, except this one. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Just this one rule. That's all I got for you. And then what do they do? They eat the forbidden fruit. And then when God comes to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, what do they do? They hide from God. Why? Because they know. Because their conscience is stricken. They are guilt ridden. They are convicted because of their transgressions. As I mentioned briefly last week, our emotional state can certainly be an indication an indicator much like that that oil lamp on our dashboard that lights up when you know we lose oil pressure it's a sign to us when we experience that state of gloom sadness dejection emotional withdrawal when we experience that depression Let that serve as a sign to us that, whoa, something is out of sorts. Something isn't right. I don't like the way I'm feeling right now. Maybe something's wrong. system needs attention. And just as that light on our dashboard is a blessing, so is the depression that comes from sin. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if you're driving along and the way that you find out that you lost the oil pressure is when your car comes to a screeching halt and then there's smoke coming up from underneath your hood? I mean, that would not be very good, right? It'd be nice to have a warning. It'd be nice to have an indicator to let us know, hey, you're getting off track here. System needs attention. Something is out of place. Well, in the same way, our feelings of despair, our emotional state of depression induced by sin is an indicator that something is off course. Therefore, the depression that God gives us as a result of sin should be seen as a blessing. It's God's gift to us to course correct. We should be glad when our conscience is stricken due to sin. In a letter that Paul writes to Timothy... He warns against those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Okay? In other words, if we're not careful, if we ignore the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, if we just resist or ignore our conscience. If we explain away our emotions or justify our sin or just put a little piece of electrical tape over that indicator on our dashboard. If we're not careful, we can lose all sensitivity to sin. And we can end up walking in the path of those that Paul says that we should not be like in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and following. About whom he says... They are separated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them because of the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for for more. If we're not sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if we're not sensitive to the conviction of our conscience and move in the right direction, and we ignore that, explain that away, overlook that, wink at sin, then before we know it, we move in a direction that leaves us insensitive to sin. With a conscience that has been seared is with the hot iron. May God not allow us to move in this direction. May God not give us over to depravity. May God not allow us to overlook iniquity. May he keep us sensitive to sin, sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. May our consciences continue to convict us and keep us in step with the Spirit and keep our will in line with his will. And in the text here, in verse 4, David makes it clear that his sin is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately against God. We know that David sinned against Uriah, took his wife as his own. And that's clearly a sin against his fellow man. And yet, in the text, David says, against you. You only have I sinned, O God. Well, What he's pointing out there is this is ultimately against God. Any sin that you and I commit is ultimately against God. And here he is recognizing that God is too holy to look upon sin. Turn your eyes from me. Do not look upon me. Hide your face from my iniquities. Because he knows that God cannot dwell with iniquity, He is too holy. For that, his eyes are too pure. And so David is now seeing his sin as God sees it, as an abomination, as disgusting, as utterly sinful. And he is feeling, due to his love for God, he is feeling the same way about his sin as God feels about it. Now he is feeling this sadness, this sorrow, this state of dejection. He is ultimately depressed over his sin due to his love for God. He's a man after God's own heart, and here he is, a man who just committed abominations. And so, in verse 80, he's speaking of the bones that God has crushed and the fact that he longs to hear joy and gladness and that God would restore him to that state of joy and gladness. He doesn't like that state of dejection, that state of sorrow, and no, one does And God uses that To our benefit, to get our attention, to heighten our sense of awareness that we have done something wrong. And so David's cry to God is essentially hey, now that I felt the sorrow of sin, now that I felt the dejection that you have decreed for me, this state of depression, now that I have been in the trenches of despair, rescue me out of it. Redeem me from this state of exile. Bring me into your presence where there is joy. And gladness. So he continues in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So first here, he's asking God, ultimately create in him a pure heart. As we've stated before, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And this isn't simply a New Testament concept. God has always been concerned about the heart of man. When David sent Samuel to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul, he sent him to anoint David. And Samuel's like, surely you want that big guy over there, right? And God's like, no, I want that little runt right there. God does not look at the things that man looks at. I'm not concerned with his outward appearance. I'm concerned about his heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And David recognizes this and says, God, create in me a pure heart heart, knowing that out of the overflow of the heart comes our thoughts, our actions, our pursuits, our walk of life. And so he asks God, creating him a pure heart, for the pure in heart are blessed. They will see God. That's ultimately what he wants. That's ultimately what we want. We, as humans created to be in fellowship with God, we long to see him, to know him, to enjoy him, to experience him, to dwell in his presence. And enjoy his fellowship. Hence, the next verse, verse 11, when he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Don't cast me from your presence. The wages of sin is death. Being separated from God, being cast out of the presence of God, exiled from God, spiritual death. Again, we see this as early as the garden. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. up oh, you ate from it. And guess what? You don't get to live in the garden anymore with me in my presence and enjoy my fellowship. Exile, separation, cast from my presence. We see this perpetuated in the life of Israel as a nation under the old covenant. These are my stipulations. If you obey them, you get to enjoy the land, full of milk and honey, blessings for obedience. But if you disobey my law, then you will be cast out of my presence. I will have another nation come from afar and destroy you and carry you off into exile. And you will be removed from the land where I have built my sanctuary and chose to make my dwelling amongst you. You will be cast from my presence. And David recognizes this concept that the wages of sin is spiritual death separation from god exile being cast out of his presence and so he begs god don't cast me out of your presence i know i've sinned i know i've done this 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 heinous thing before you that you hate you abhor this is an abomination to you god and i recognize it and i'm sorry don't cast me out of your presence don't send me to my room i want to hang out in the living room with you don't cast me from your presence oh god but restore me to the joy of your salvation. Rescue me, God, from this state of exile, from this feeling of despair, from this state of separation. where I feel like I'm not in fellowship with you. Men our friendship. Restore the fellowship. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I don't want to sin. Sin is tempting, yes, But I don't want to be tempted by sin. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Cause me to walk in righteousness. Grant me a willing spirit. I want to want to walk in righteousness. I want my will to be the same as your will. I want to keep in step with the spirit. Grant me a willing spirit so that I want to want to want to walk in righteousness. I don't want to want sin. He continues, verse 13. Then, as a result of this rescue, then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. So we see here that David identifies two glorious results of his rescue out of this despair. His rescue out of this state of depression will yield two glorious results. One, he will teach others. Two, he will praise God. He says, I will teach others. Essentially, I will shine your light before men. And lead them in paths of righteousness. My testimony will serve as witness to the fact that sin leads to depression, to a gloomy, sad estate. And nobody wants that. So I will lend my testimony as witness to them and lead them out of the pit of despair and into a path of righteousness. I will teach transgressors your ways so that they too will walk in righteousness. Additionally, as a result of my rescue, as a result of my salvation from this state of gloom and despair, I will praise you. I will worship you. My mouth will declare your glory. Now, sing your praise, giving honor to your name. He continues. Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Well, that's interesting because if you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the law of Moses, it says that God does delight in burnt offerings, that he does like sacrifices, that it's a pleasing aroma to him. So what is David getting at here? Well, I think the point that David is trying to make is that here's the deal David lived under the time of the Old Covenant, when offerings and sacrifices were required to make atonement for sin. Okay, a man, a woman would bring a, a sinless animal before the priest, and then a hand would be placed on that innocent animal to kind of represent the transfer of sin, the transfer of guilt, from the human to the animal, and that animal would be slaughtered. It's innocent blood spilled to make atonement for sins. Well, here's the deal. Um, Any person could just go through the motions, take an animal to the priest, make an offering, make a sacrifice. But that doesn't mean his heart has changed. That doesn't mean that he's sorry for his sin. That doesn't mean that he has any intentions of turning from his wicked ways and walking in righteousness. He just in a hard hearted state going, eh, so what I sin? here, making my sacrifice and then moving on. Who cares? I can always just make a sacrifice when I sin. Just go through the motions of the hard hearts. David, on the other hand, is saying my offering, my sacrifice to you, God, is a repentant heart. Not just going through the motions and bringing an animal before you and going about my business with no repentance. No, here is my heart, God, and it is broken and contrite before you. I am sorry for my sin. My heart is changed. And that is far more important to God than the blood of bulls and goats. And in the same way, you and I today should not have the hard-hearted attitude that says, well, you know what? Jesus' blood has already been shed to make atonement for sins, so yeah. <clears throat> there's grace. I can do what I want, do whatever I feel like. I mean, sure, I, I can walk in sin, but <clears throat> Jesus' blood was shed, so I'm in the clear. My sins have been atoned for Rather, like David, we should have a heart that breaks for sin. A heart that breaks for God over sin. A heart that experiences sorrow for sin. A broken and contrite heart. And our attitude should be one that recognizes that sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And that we should not continue to walk in ways that are displeasing to God. If our ultimate goal, if our number one command is to love God and to obey Him is to love Him and to do what is pleasing to Him is to love Him, why why would we do anything else? Why would we choose to walk in sin if we know And it's displeasing to God. If we know that he hates it. If we know that it's an abomination to him. If we know that it's what put Jesus, his son, on the cross. Rather, like David, we should give our hearts to God. God, here is my heart that breaks over sin. It's yours. This is my sacrifice before you. Take it. Make it pure. Purify it. Write your law upon it. Move it so that it... Motivates me to walk in obedience to you. Grant me a willing spirit. So here in this text, we can see how sin affected the emotional state of David, one of the great men of the faith. How it led him to a state of depression and that God used that depression to get his attention and draw David back to Himself, And once again, the depression that is caused by sin, sin-induced depression, if you will, is ultimately a blessing. It's ultimately a blessing. Mm-hmm. It's like that indicator light that says something is amiss. Something is wrong. Course correction needed. And we don't like that feeling. We don't like feeling depressed. We don't like feeling sad and gloomy and dejected. So gets our attention. Causes us to cry out to God if our response is right. If our conscience is not seared, if we're sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and responsive to our conscience, it causes us to cry out to God, have mercy on me, O God, blot out my sins. And for you and I have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I know that you have already forgiven these sins. Nonetheless, I am sorry for them. I know they're displeasing to you. I am repentant and I seek your face and your fellowship. Alright, he closes this psalm in a very interesting way. Verse 18 and 19, he says, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know, at first glance it could seem like, hey, there's a contradiction. I thought David just said that God does not delight in such offerings. And now he's talking about those in Jerusalem offering those kind of offerings. So we can see clearly that David's not against burnt offerings. He's for them. But he's more for the sacrifice of the working contract contrite heart. So what is David getting at here? Well, I think that David recognizes his role in Israel. David is the king. Okay, And if you survey the course of Israel's history... As goes the leader, as goes the king, so go the people. And David is kind of like this little rudder that, you know, determines the course of the entire ship of the covenant community of Israel. If David walks in iniquity, if David continues to pursue a path of wickedness, he will lead Israel down a path of wickedness. And according to the stipulations of the covenant, curses for disobedience. On the other hand, if David's heart is changed, if God creates in him a pure heart and he turns to God and his iniquities are blotted out and he seeks God's face and he walks in a path of righteousness that is pleasing to God, then he will likewise lead Israel in a path of righteousness. Blessings for obedience, for the entire covenant community. So what David is speaking of here in these final verses of Psalm 51 is the blessed estate of Israel due to the leadership of David walking in righteousness. I walk in righteousness. Israel follows in righteousness. God blesses Israel. Israel is prosperous. God prospers Zion as a result of me walking in righteousness. Now, you and I are not living under the old covenant in a time when Israel is a geopolitical entity with a king reigning on the throne literally in earthly jerusalem right we are in the new covenant community in christ we are the body of christ we don't have one individual who like the little rudder has the power to lead the, the course of the covenant community in that way but I would say that as the new covenant community of Christ, each and every one of us are like a small word that has the ability to affect the course of the covenant community. We are the body of Christ. Every single one of us is connected. And as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, no part is any less significant than the other. We're all one body, many parts, different functions. The ear has its function of hearing. The eye has its function of seeing. The mouth has its function of speaking. And no part is any less important than the other. But all these little parts work together and function together. And everything that one itty-bitty little part of the body does affects the rest of the body. You ever stub your toe? Does that not affect your ability to do certain things? And just as it was no small thing for David to walk in iniquity, to walk in wickedness, it is no small thing for you and I to walk in wickedness. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. We are all connected as the body of Christ. And just as David had the power as a small rudder to turn the course of the whole ship, so do you, so do I. And again, Paul draws this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he explains the body of Christ and the connectedness of one member to another. And earlier in that letter, in fact, in chapter 5, Paul points out that the heinous sins of one man— We're having a negative impact on the health of the covenant community at large. Paul condemns a man for sleeping with his mother-in-law, pointing out that this has to stop. In fact, he encouraged them to put the man out of their fellowship. With such a person, do not even eat, he says. 1 Corinthians was a letter in which Paul had some pretty tough things to say. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in Corinth and I received that letter, it might cultivate some sorrow, some sadness, some dejection, some despair. It might leave me a little bit depressed. Did you read that letter from Paul and all the harsh things he had to say about the way we're doing things? Man, I thought we were on point. Not so much. State of depression. Well, open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians is the follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians. And I'd like us to take a, a quick look at just a portion of this follow-up letter and take note of how this sin-induced depression was ultimately a blessing that would benefit them and better them. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Referring to his... Letter, First Corinthians, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended. And so were are not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So we see here once again that God uses sin-induced depression As a blessing, as an indicator, as a means to draw people to repentance and ultimately to seek his face and his presence, to make his people better than they were before. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death and regrets. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And leaves no regrets, ultimately leads to life. Hmm. Sorrow that turns to God in repentance says, I will seek the face of God. It goes to God to say, I'm sorry for my sin. I agree with you that this is sin. Purify my heart. Grant me a spirit that is willing to walk in righteousness henceforth. But God, worldly sorrow, on the other hand, kind of like a sorrow that says, I'm sorry I got caught. I guess I'll have to be more crafty next time. Well, I guess I have to suffer the consequences for what I did. Made my bed, now I have to sleep in it. Oh well. Or I guess I'll just go make an offering or sacrifice. Worldly sorrow leads to death a further separation from God, a a continuance and an expansion of the chasm between man and God, as man, rather than turning to God, turns away from God, and it leads to deeper exile, whereas a godly sorrow leads to repentance, draws man to God. And on a practical level, it produces earnestness, righteousness, a desire to see justice done, It keeps in step with the Spirit and says, Yes, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. So, in closing, in summary, God wants what is best for us. Ultimately, best for us. And sin is not that. And thus, God has hardwired us in such a way. That sin leads to a guilty conscience. Sin leads to a state of sadness, of sorrow, of dejection, ultimately of depression. And that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Now, the obvious solution to defeating sin-induced depression, this is way too easy. Wait for it. Don't sin. Easier said than done, right? Right. Nonetheless, when we do sin, when we do sin, it should lead to a godly sorrow. Let us retain that sensitivity to sin. Let us retain that sensitivity to our conscience, to the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's good for us. It's that indicator lamp. It's that blessing to us that says, hey, time to course correct. Things are out of alignment. Something is wrong here. And We don't enjoy that state of depression. We desperately desire that God would rescue us out of that pit of despair and thus causes us to cry out to God. God, rescue me from this. Redeem me. Save me from this state of depression and bring me. Into your presence where there is joy, where there is delight, where there is satisfaction. Let's not respond with a worldly sorrow that has regrets and that leads to death, but with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to a life of righteousness that pleases God. And if loving God is our ultimate aim, then pleasing him should be our aim. And in doing so, we will find great pleasure, great joy, knowing that we are walking in a way that is pleasing to God leads to joy, which is the ultimate antidepressant.